The title of the message is The Truth That Sets You Free? Question mark. Emphasis on relationship and intimacy with God. Okay, we're amidst this series on what is the truth and how it can set us free. And here we are, John chapter 8, verse 31 and verse 32. And we're really going to unpack these verses at this particular time. So I heard a story about a police officer who pulled over a man on the road. He was driving, obviously. And when he pulled him over, he noticed that the man had two penguins in the back of his car. And and he's just like, man, do you realize these are endangered species? I could have you arrested right now. And he said to the man, this is what you need to do. You need to like right now take these penguins to the zoo. And the man said, for sure, no problem. All right, so the next day though, the police officer sees the same man. And he has the same penguins in the back of his car. But this time the penguins have these sunglasses and a Hawaiian shirt on. He's thinking, I can't believe this guy. He pulls them over and he says, look, man, I told you I could have you arrested. I told you to take these penguins to the zoo. The guy said, I, I did. And today I'm going to take them to the beach. You know, they have sunglasses and, Hawaii, you know, Hawaiian shirt and stuff. Now you talk about missing the point, right? And by the way, that illustration is a major ripoff from a friend. Totally ripped it off. But here's the thing. You talk about missing the point, right? Here's the thing. I don't want to miss the point of this particular message. When we read Jesus saying, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth. The truth shall set you free. I want to underscore right up front, like what the point is. Even though we haven't given explanation to the passage and we're going to underscore the point the more in just a little bit. I don't want us to miss it. So we have it up on the screen. You have some uh, like a bulletin. You can fill in some answers if you like here. But here's the point. God's word is not purposed to be an end in itself of facts and experience and knowledge, ethical and moral principle, but rather a revelation of who God is and his plan and to nurture intimate relationship with him. So that means, as I was mentioning earlier, that God's Word is not intended to produce a kind of bibliolatry. You know, it's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. You know, ultimately, His Word is a revelation of Himself to nurture right relationship and for His plan to, un- uh, to develop and unfold in our lives and ultimately in the world. Remember, Jesus met some disciples after His resurrection on the road to Emmaus and explained that the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the law, the Psalms, the prophets spoke of him. It's about Jesus. It's about relationship with the Messiah King, right? Uh, One person said, although charismatics have sometimes given a higher priority to experience than to relationship, rationalistic evangelicals have just as frequently given a high priority to knowledge than to relationship. So it could be summarized, okay, just just want us to miss the point that the Spirit of God inspired the Word of God to equip and transform the man and woman of God in relationship with God to impact the world for God. Did you get that? All right? So look, why am I mentioning this? Because I have to admit, when I read John chapter 8, verse 31 and verse 32, which, like all the years of knowing the Lord, this is probably one of the most frequently quoted verses in my own life. 
Okay, if you abide in me, in my word, you're my disciples. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. Here's where I generally gravitate. I personally focus in upon the byproduct of actually continuing Jesus' word and having a relationship with him, which is to know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's what I end up focusing in on. I, I focus in on all the aspects of truth and how the truth will set you free. Because after all, truth is so important. I mean, can I hear an amen to that? Jesus said, I am the truth. And he actually, in 2 Thessalonians says, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they would believe the lie. Truth is very important. And truth is more than facts. Just like Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. Hey, that's truth. Well, that's actually a fact of history. Biblical truth is unique. There's the spirit of truth. We're talking about when tr- we talk about truth biblically, truth is a person. It's the true and living God. Truth is a plan. Truth is who we are in right relationship with the Son, uh, uh, in the Son with the Father, okay? So track with me, you guys. Watch this. When I personally look at this verse, I generally focus in on, okay, the truth aspect and how the truth shall set you free. And needless to say, truth is very important. There's no doubt about it. But the emphasis of Jesus' statement here is actually relationship. If you continue in my word, my word, my word, okay? As I said last time, like, it's, he's not quoting Leviticus 23, super important. He's not quoting Genesis 1, super important. My word. So it's like personal here. My disciples. A disciple in first century Jewish culture is a term that speaks of a relationship with a rabbi. And the goal of a rabbi was not only to inform and to teach, but watch this, to model a life to his students that would bring transformation and change. And ultimately the goal in following a rabbi is that you're like, like you know this rabbi so much and that you're transformed by, by their modeling and by what they're teaching you, that ultimately then you become a rabbi and you replicate this process with others. And, and this is why scholars believe that the best word for disciple, the Greek word is mathetes in English, is not a learner or a student or one who is disciplined in, in the right way, but actually an apprentice. So when, when Jesus said, you'll be my disciples, he's saying, okay, look, so here's the idea. The idea is that you're going to be with me, you're going to be like me, and ultimately, you're going to do what I did and do what I do. And 13 times, Jesus is referred to as rabbi in the scriptures and referred to as a teacher a bunch more times. In fact, remember, Nathaniel, when he first saw Jesus recorded in John 148, we have it up on the screen, he said, rabbi. Rabbi, you are son of God, the king. You are king of Israel. Because through a Hebraic lens, son would speak of the promised son through the line of David. So son would be like, man, you're the promised king who's going to establish the kingdom forever. And this unique son is going to be the Lord. So you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In fact, one person said, we cannot understand who Jesus is unless we recognize him as a first century Jewish rabbi. So why am I underscoring this? Because this is relational, 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 relational. That's my my point. 
is that the word of God is not an end in itself just to inspire us or to fill our heads with knowledge or some experience in this moment because learning is exciting. Learning new things is exciting and it's invigorating and our minds are intended to be inspired. No, the emphasis here, when Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. Emphasis, relationship, relationship, relationship. In origin, the followers of Jesus were identified as disciples. After the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to his disciples. It says, John 21, 14. In the book of Acts, 25 times followers of Jesus are identified as disciples. Five times, disciple. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to be with him. It's to be like him. And it's to do what he did. Which is such a contrast, and I've mentioned this before, to how Christianity is seen today. Because according to sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, the majority of young people who call themselves Christians in America, what they actually believe, they said, is, is kind of this moralistic, therapeutic deism. To be a Christian means to be a good person. To be a Christian is to believe in God, to see him as at times he can help you you know, through your problems. And he certainly does help us through our problems. Can I hear a big amen to that? But he's kind of a therapist up there. But, but, but Christianity as like, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then I'm a disciple, so I am with Jesus. There's relations, highly relational. I am becoming like Jesus, conformed into his image, that then I am called to make disciples, to impact a generation that is not in the waters in the West. That is not how we predominantly think it. And yet, that's exactly how the Lord wants us to think of it. And, and under the banner of the truth sets us free, the point is there's an emphasis on relationship and intimacy. And, and that's why we've made the point God's word is not purpose to be an end in itself, a, a facts or knowledge or ethical or moral principle, but rather of revelation of who God is his plan to nurture intimate relationship with him. So watch this, you, watch this, you guys. So just check this out. Like context, John 8, it's Feast of Tabernacles. You have some who are believing, following Jesus. So let's just go back, context, context, context. One of those who are following Jesus is a guy named Nicodemus. And he's actually in the context back in chapter 7, following Jesus. We know of him from John chapter 3 when Jesus said, you know, Nicodemus, and of course, a great Pharisee ruler at that time in, in Israel, he said, Nicodemus, you're not going to see nor enter into the kingdom unless you're born again. How many of you ever heard of the term born again? Raise your hand. You guys all need to raise your hand right now. Everybody raise your hand. Okay. All right. Good job, guys. Rise Church is the best. All right. So, um, you know, you got to be born again of the Spirit. And it's like, oh, man, Nicodemus, we, initially we think you're a great teacher, um, Nicodemus, Jesus is basically saying much more than just, much more than a rabbi. I've come down from heaven. Okay, he's a rabbi, but he's the king. He's the Lord. He's a rabbi on steroids times a billion. All right. Nicodemus is following Jesus. And, and it's like as he follows him, he comes to understand the more who he is. And in context of chapter 7, in Tabernacles, Jesus claimed to be Messiah. We talked about this. Then in chapter 8, just kind of think of Nicodemus continuing to follow him, okay? Um, using a little liberty here. And then chapter 8, 
Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The great I am, the self-existing one, Yahweh, whoa. The Messiah is Yahweh? The Messiah is the Lord? Yeah, the king. The king will establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. He is the king. And then as you continue to follow him, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and as David was saying earlier, how the Lord came with his love rescue to bridge the gap between God and man. Okay, what does that mean? He would give his life on the cross on Passover. Bridge the gap between God and man. Okay, I'll know the truth. The truth should set you free. Yeah. And then Jesus said, just check with me. And then Jesus said, hey, it's profitable that I leave. Because the Spirit is with you, but one day he's going to be in you. It's like, so as followers of Jesus, we are the temple of God. God actually indwelling us, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, indwells us. Now, now you're talking about relationship times a billion. You're talking about monster intimacy there. I mean, my best friend is, is the Lord, but humanly speaking is my precious wife. And I've been married 33 years. She is the love of my life. Uh, but, you know, and, 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 the, and the friendship and the intimacy is just absolutely beautiful. But, but we're talking about here a totally other intimacy. You're talking about the Spirit of the living God indwelling you. How many of you believe that? Could you raise your hand? I'm serious now. I mean, like, like he indwells you. Because the Bible says when that takes place, his Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So therefore, Christianity is not really psychological or some philosophy. It's actually divine interaction that is taking place. Listen, one of the great Christian leaders of our time, and I mentioned this like a couple of months ago, Francis Schaeffer, was asked, what's the greatest obstacle to the modern church? His answer was fascinating in both what he didn't say as well as what he did. He didn't say that the major problems of the church are the isms of culture, the breakdown in culture. So he didn't say, hey, the problem is sensualism or materialism or atheism or relativism. But rather, he says, it's ministry in the flesh, which is a general reference, flesh, to humanity, but also the total person living outside of God's purpose and power. So it's like, um, I'm going to mono it, not stereo it with God, so to speak. I'm going to live my life uh, pulling from my own strength in the flesh, not in companionship and intimacy with God. And so Schaefer went on to say, the real problem is this. The church of Lord Jesus, Messiah, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of God's people, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Okay, so watch this. What are we talking about? Well, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, okay, relational, my disciples. The term disciple, in the West, we may think, hey, disciples, going deep, man. We're learning Greek and we're learning Hebrew. Um, awesome. Okay, but the depth that Jesus is talking about there is relationship that leads to transformation. I'm with Jesus. I'm like Jesus. And then, and then I'm replicating. I'm, my life is being used to impact other people in the name of Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, that's just like awesome. 
And it's, it's so emphasis, relationship, relationship, relationship. And it's like, and he followed Jesus. He's saying, now the Lord is going to be in you. That's super intimate. We have this verse up on the screen. And, and, and I want us to hone in on this. And we're going to give some examples of what it looks like, actually, to have this intimacy in relationship with God's word. Because Paul said this, and this is so big. In fact, I heard, I was listening to Pastor Chuck Smith tape recently, and um, he quoted this, and it reads, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And everybody said, amen, right? Hey, listen, you guys, I want you to look at that word communion there, because in the Greek, the term is koinonia. And either used as a noun or verb, it speaks of the closest of human relationships. So the relationship that we have with each other is the parallel fellowship we enjoy with the Lord. And we see this like in the Lord's life himself, who prior to being arrested and eventually crucified, he said to his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for a variety of reasons. But one is, is companionship. It was like, you know, he called those who followed him friends. So just let me go back. Communion with the Holy Spirit. That's radical, beautiful intimacy, friendship, relationship, interaction. That's incredibly vibrant and organic. You know, my my son, I have two sons, but the youngest was saying, you know, Dad, I'm I'm learning about my firstborn son. And of course, is one of our grandsons. And he said, you know, I'm just learning that Liam needs personal time. Man, if I give him personal time in the morning and I hang out with him, just his day is totally different with his mom. Makes a world of difference. And in a similar way, I mean, we have relationship with the Lord and the idea of actually spending time with him in interaction is so real. The great Puritan leader Samuel Rutherford said, You know, a long time out of Christ's glorious presence is two deaths and two hells for me. We must meet. I'm I'm not able to do it without him. In other words, I I have to have time consciously. Like that, though I know the Lord is in the room and there's communion with him. One person said it this way. It appears many believers, though, are unaware of the invitation to fellowship with God, commune with God, uh, with Him intimately by His Spirit, to the point that their relationship with Him is primarily a matter of reasoned intellectual response, hardly reflecting true communion with Him, hardly reflecting a shared experience with Him. And here's one of the reasons why I think that is, because I think a lot of people don't even realize that the communion aspect is even available. So the idea that they could be alone and that the Lord... is in the room in a big way, just as he was with Peter or Paul uh, and the rest of them. We're not even thinking in such terms, but we need to think in such terms. You know, my favorite exhibit at Disneyland, I have to tell you, when I go to Disneyland, it's first, got to get something to eat. Yes. Okay, number two, I love like the Abraham Lincoln exhibit. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The third time I ask you, raise your hands. Okay, I mean, to be honest with you, I like that exhibit. I, I, you know, and there's Abe, and he's kind of anatomic, and he's talking to you, and he's 
whatever the message is, it's super inspiring and things. So I'm there just having this experience and my head's lit up. I'm inspired. I just feel better about life and myself after the show ends and stuff. But that's it. I mean, you know, and it, and it just, if I remember correctly, like the, you know, the, the lights go dark and it's just like Abe's kind of just still there. And, you know, he's there. But it's like, you, you can't go up to Abe and just go, Abe, man, I just want to thank you for that speech. That was awesome. Can Hey, listen, would you just go for a walk with me? Can, could we like have some coffee? And hey, I hear there's a Starbucks again. And this is awesome. Could you like, could, could, we, could we hang out together? No, he's like, no, he's, not, he's no longer alive, okay? I mean, it's, that's, that's just communion is impossible. Though, I've had this experience with his ideas. I've had experience with what he communicated, even though it's not really him. It's just, it's just an experience. It's knowledge. It's inspiration. And, and unfortunately, well, let me just put it differently. Hey, the good news is, is we don't have to have a relationship with God like that. That in other words, we just might, it's just like a mono thing coming at us. We might be inspired with some knowledge, but we have like intimate relationship with him. Can I hear another amen to that? So here's point number two, and then we're going to look at what it looks like. God's word reveals the truth that God's purposed our lives for intimate communion with the spirit. And the question is, what does that look like? And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Turn to Acts chapter 12, you guys. There's a picture here that I would like just to build on. You know, last week we were in John chapter 5, and Jesus spoke to the man who was paralyzed. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. I love it. And we're talking about the power of the Word of God, how it sets us free. And, and just notice here, in fact, let's get context. Acts chapter 12. It tells us that about that time, Herod, we're talking about Herod Agrippa the first. The king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Context is Jerusalem. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Gosh, I read this every time I read it. Just, I get so upset about it. Um, close family. In fact, James and John's mom followed the Lord. So he's murdered him. In verse 3, it says, He saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of Unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Okay. And it says, when Herod, when Herod was about to bring him out, the night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and light shone in the room and he struck Peter on the side, raised him up saying, arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then he said, gird yourself and tie your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Okay, like, okay, what's going on? Peter's in prison, four squads of soldiers. That means two are like right in the room with them. Two are guarding the door. And then there's another two that are going to be in rotation. So it's like the door is shut. The church on the outside cannot get into where Peter is at to rescue him. There's just no way. That door is shut. 
But we learn that there's another door that is always open, which is a door to access to the throne of God in prayer, which I love. And the church outside is storming this door. So, boy, that's always good perspective, right? So circumstantially in our life, things could be, you know, troublesome. Some doors could be shutting, but there's always a door open to us to the most powerful being in the universe, and that's the Lord himself, and we have direct access to him. I love that. I remember many years ago, now I'm mentioning our second-born son, I think for the third time. But I remember him saying to me, you know, Dad, God cannot hear you speak when you have your hands over your face. You know, and so I must have been like this praying, I don't know. But to my son, who was just a little guy at the time, he's thinking, Dad, you, Dad, Dad, take your hands off your face. You know, God cannot hear you. And I, I remember telling him, son, he can hear my thoughts. And he looked at me and thought, really? <laughs> he was so amazed that, you know, the Lord could actually hear my thoughts. Well, there's one door that's always open to us, and that's the door of prayer. And, and that is awesome, how encouraging that is. But I want us to break something down. I want us to break down beginning in verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, a light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his head. Let's just break this down and give us some application, okay, biblically speaking. The angel struck him to awake him. At this point, uh, Peter could have, as he's awakened, he could have said, Oh, man, I felt that. I mean, I'm moved by that. But he could have remained standing there. It's true. In fact, Peter is not even sure what's taking place at this time. As you continue to read the narrative, it's like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm girding myself. I'm putting a belt on, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Figuratively speaking, the belt of truth, if we want to turn to Ephesians 6. And he's just like following this angel out. And eventually uh, the angel leaves. And then he knows for certain that this is not some dream. I mean, he is taking steps where he does not have full disclosure and understanding of actually what's taking place. But he's arising, and he's been struck. Okay, well, you know, the Bible says that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. Simple point. You know, we can be struck by this sword that is always healing, by the way, it's always a healing, comforting, nourishing, challenging, life-giving experience, okay? Uh, we can be struck by it, but not move. It's like, so, so it's like this angel struck Peter, and he, and he helped him get up, and then he's saying, like, Pete, you've got to take the next step here, so get your clothes on and, and tie your shoes and stuff, because we are out of there. Imagine if Pete just goes, you know what? I've had this experience. I've been struck, but he didn't move. Well, that's not what Peter did. He did move. And as he did, you have this beautiful picture of like the chains falling off. Remember last week in John 5, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, you know, rise, which I'm sure like billions of times this guy throughout his life was hoping to rise and to walk. But now it's coming from a directive from the divine, the Lord himself, which makes all the difference in the world. So now it's like under the banner of God's word. And if I step into it, if I will to believe it and obey it, then I experience the power that it is promising. 
in the call, in the direction. And in a similar way, I just see this with Pete. He struck, and then the angel says, arise. Pete, like, keep moving. I mean, this is only actually just the beginning. And as he does, the chains fall off. So here's the application. And I just wonder, how is the Holy Spirit bringing this to home in your life? And that is when we're struck by the sword of the Spirit. Arise. In other words, have a posture that I am, it's like, like whenever I'm exposed to God's word and the word of Jesus, my posture is I am receptive to it and I am ready to respond to it. Not just have an experience. Not just, um, yeah, I know that, you know, I've heard him tell me to arise before or something, but actually I'm in a ready position to lay hold of it. Because I'll tell you something, that listening ear, what you're going to discover is when we open the word, I take it seriously. Can you continue in my word? You'll know be my disciples. You'll know the truth or truth to set you free. You're going to discover the Lord speaking to you in very personal ways that continues his work of wholeness and freedom and growth in our lives. Can I hear an amen to that? Hey, you know, remember seven messages Jesus gave to those in Revelation. To the churches, that is. Every single one. He said, hey, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says. So he wants us to be really good listeners. Now, now watch this. If you continue in my word, context, we've studied it. But let's broaden the context. We have the scripture on the screen. Let's talk about God's word from Genesis to Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, what's the next word, you guys, for? Doctrine, which means it's profitable for what is right, okay? For reproof, which identifies what is not right. For correction, which identifies how to get right. For instruction, which identifies how to stay right. And instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, which speaks of how to do what is right. Now, like when, in origin, when, when Paul penned this, all scriptural, he's thinking, of course, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, the New Testament hadn't been brought together at this particular time. Although it's clear that the New Testament in first century was identified as holy scriptures. So, we have Genesis to Revelation. So therefore, in application, we're thinking of both the Hebrew Scriptures as well as the New Testament. But again, looking at this verse here, it, all Scriptures God breathes. So it has divine authority behind it. Identifies what is right, what is not right, how to get right, stay right, do what is right. Um, and therefore, this means we ought to expect that when we are, just to use that metaphor, struck by the Spirit, that we ought to expect that it's going to identify what is right, which is great, that we're, our lives are aligned with what is truth, because truth sets us free. It's, going to, it's, going, it's, it's vibrant and, and organic and living, if you will, to identify what is not right. It, it, it's, it's something... It's something living, right? And we should have that expectation. I know this is kind of simple, but it's so important. I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit brings us afresh to all of our hearts. Because 
The Word of God is not an end in itself. We're not about bibliolatry here, though we're totally committed to Genesis to Revelation. Can I hear another amen to that? It's like facilitates relationship, and the Holy Spirit clearly is at work. So here's the application. When reading the Bible, man, raise the expectancy to hear from the Lord because you are in communion with the Spirit. And that means this. Therefore, when you open the Scriptures, now we're just talking general here. Now we've broadened the, the perspective. Approach it with a reverential attitude. Be still and know that I am God. It's like I am in the presence of the Lord himself. You know, one of the great things I, I just love to do is just be in the presence of my wife. There's, there, just being in her presence, maybe not even communicating. Well, that's fantastic, of course. But I can just be in her presence. There's so much to celebrate that is already between us. And all of these experiences that we have had with each other, so much common ground. And I just love being in her presence. Okay, so watch. You guys, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's alongside of us. He strengthens us, comes upon us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So when we approach the Word in a general sense, we need to do so with a reverential attitude and to be still, know that the Lord is in the room and know that He is God. Number two, we need to come with an expectant attitude. The Bible says, come close to God and God will come close to you. So in other words, you know, don't see even this time and don't see the study of you know, the Word of God on your own as if like, okay, I'm watching Abraham Lincoln at, at Disneyland and it's just a mono, non-stereo, no relationship. No, actually, I have a sense of expectancy that the Lord is going to meet me. And by His Spirit, He's going to bring the truth of His Word afresh to my heart. You guys, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I love this. And let me encourage those of you, maybe, maybe you are in a season of life, of unique challenge, maybe even a season of life, of isolation. Um, and God bless you, but I want to encourage you in something. Because that was John. Uh, and John was the youngest of the apostles that followed Jesus. And it tells us in the book of Revelation, verse 9, John pinning it, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus, Messiah. What's going on there? Um, well, according to tradition, uh, the Roman Empire tried to kill John. And they tried to kill him by actually putting him in boiling oil. But for some reason, it didn't work. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos. They isolated him. And Bible students believe, like, John is in his 90s. Um, you know, my, my father's 89. He will be 90 in just a few months. And, and he's I mean, super alert. I mean, I don't see any difference in communicating with him. He's just as stubborn as he always was. No, just kidding. Okay, no, I, don't, I love my dad. My best man at my wedding. But it's, it's like, so I'm just picturing a little bit like John. I mean, he's like totally lucid. But he's exiled. Okay, so he, he's been marginalized. And I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you feel like that in, in your life. And it could be for a variety of reasons. I, you know, and, and you feel kind of this marginalization, this isolation. 
Now, now obviously, just context here, like John is going to receive. Look at verse 1. It reads, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation means unveiling. So what he's going to receive while he's marginalized and isolated, he's going to receive a, a like, like really clear pixelation of the future work of Jesus. It's like we know something about who Jesus was in eternity past. We know something about like who Jesus is in prophecy. We know something about Jesus when he hung, bled, gave his life on Passover, resurrected, ascended, you know, and promising to come back. I mean, we know he's at the right hand of the Father. We know a lot about Jesus. But what Revelation tells us in really clear pixelation is, is the future work of Jesus. So this is no small thing that he's actually receiving here. The revelation of Jesus. It doesn't say the unveiling of, let me tell you about the Antichrist. Or, or let me let me say like about six 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 was one world government that that uh, you know causes the world to be centralized in its power and things and influence. I mean, Revelation addresses that, but it's really about the King. It's about Jesus, and and to be being filled with the Spirit. And, and while people have different views of what that looks like, does that have a gift accompany with it? In essence, actually, in context of Ephesians five, to be being filled with the Spirit is to have your heart captured and recaptured with who Jesus is, who he is in truth, and who you are in relationship with him. And we need that on a daily basis. Oh, Lord, help us. I just want to make a point. Like, I want to, so I'm, I'm pinning the revelation of Jesus. And it's, it's going to identify his future work. John's 90 years of age. He's marginalized. He's isolated. And yet, oh, my goodness gracious, um, would it be accurate to say that the, the greatest of revelations are coming to him at 90 years of age? Um, um, you would have to compare that. Well, he walked with Jesus. He was there. He handled him even said. I, I don't even know if that would be a correct way to say it, but it would be correct to say that, man, his relationship with the Lord is clearly alive. It's vibrant. I mean, Jesus is capturing his heart afresh. In fact, let's just continue to read. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, kind of like, kind of caught up in a spiritual time machine. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. It doesn't say it's a trumpet. It's a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. What you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Oh man, we think Daniel 7, clothed with a garment down to feet, girded with chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as of sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Whoa, I mean, when's the last time that you were just totally blown away with the awesomeness of Jesus, right? I mean, is it possible, okay, and not to freak me, but it's like, this is John, this happens in the history, there's only one John, I guess, this is Revelation, he's on his face because he's so blown away by what he's seeing, but in principle, what I'm trying to say is, 
Look, it is clearly possible that the Lord can meet us in such a way when we're alone and isolated and marginalized in such a way that we're just like, oh, Lord, you are so beautiful, so awesome. Like, I'm on my face adoring who you are. I, and let me just share something. Maybe that sounds extreme to some. Um, it isn't, actually. It isn't. The good news is, is that that type of realism and relationship can be the case in all of our lives. If you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. Relationship. I'm with you, like you, replicating. You'll know the truth. Yes, truth. And truth sets you free, breaks the chains that hold you down in intimacy, in character, and John is like on, on his face. And I just love this so beautiful. Oh, man, I feel like the Lord, oh, the Lord is so beautiful. He laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. And I just want to say for anyone who maybe is going through a trial right now, may you feel the wind of the Father's right hand in your life because he has his hand on you. Can I hear an amen to that? It's a flat out fact. I just want to say we have a great king because I have felt his hand. And he is comforting me by his big hand. Our father has really big, beautiful, strong hands. In this case, Jesus is reaching down, laid his hand. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And we all said it together. Amen. Love it. So look, come with expectancy. And lastly, Come with a willing attitude when you read the word. We have it up on the screen. Whoever is willing to do what God wants will know whether it's true or not. Look, we're talking about this morning the needed posture of our hearts when we're exposed to the word of God. Just remember, it's not bibliolatry, man. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's relationship. And our relationship with the Word of God is that it's alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit is clearly working to bring fresh application. And I just pray that this week there would be beautiful experiences that you would have as you open the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit would bring afresh His Word to your heart that is always a healing, encouraging, comforting, challenging confronting, if need be, realigning word. So it's just like, Lord, have your way.